0: Would you please pray with me? Lord, thank you for this gospel. Thank you for coming to save us. Lord, I lift up this time. I ask you to help me preach well. I pray that you would speak your words of identity over us, and I pray for our children as well, that they would come up knowing that they are sons and daughters of you by adoption. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. You may be seated. So we're in our second week of a sermon series on the identity of Jesus, and last week I ended by telling you that sometimes Jesus's ministry causes confusion, and even for us, we're called to do things that confuse other people. I told you a story of quitting our jobs because we felt the Lord had called Heather and I to do this. We left the Episcopal Church, this was in 2001, and we went to England and we spent three months living in Sheffield, England, and having a sabbatical and an immersion experience in a church that had figured out how to be missional in a post-Christian culture. In England, something like 2 or 3% of the citizens claim to be Christian uh, when they fill out census. So, I mean, it's, it's really post-Christian. And one of the things that they were doing in this church is they had their YAPS program, is a dumb acronym, but it sticks with you. YAPS, and it stood for the Young Adult Placement Scheme. Kind of a weird name, but it was basically an internship program, and um, they were helping young people, I would say 18 to 24, figure out their identity and their mission and how to go serve God in this in this cultural moment in England where they were. And I bring that up because they had a saying that they said often around this program, and I and I, and I won't. Uh, dishonored the English accent by attempting to mock it, but imagine an English accent and they regularly said, who are you and what do you do? Who are you and what do you do? And I asked that question of us this morning, because I'm going to talk about identity and what you do should flow out of who you are, not necessarily the other way around. You're a human being, not a human doing. But if someone asked you, who are you and what do you do as a result of that, what what would you say? How do you identify yourself? When someone says something that asks about your identity, what, what's your response? There's a lot of confusion around that. And there's a lot of false identity thinking out there. And I don't mean identity theft. I mean ourselves. We, we don't have cl- clarity on who we are. And our identity is formed by lots of influences and sources. It's an interesting exercise if you're someone who posts regularly or even occasionally on any kind of Uh, social media, Facebook, Instagram, whatever it might be. Um, What do you post and why? What are you conveying? And what you choose to post says something about how you see yourself. Who are you? Or who are you and what do you do? There are other places too. Performance. Have you ever been called a type A person or a straight A student? Those are identity markers that are based on performance. That's who you are based on what you do or how well you do at it. There are lots of these things around. Uh, Sinful behavior as well gets labels. Our identity can be formed by sinful addictions and patterns. You know, somebody that's the partier, the drinker, the womanizer. Lots of different things, labels like this. The socialite, somebody whose identity is based on the relationship status they have with people, and they're always trying to get to the next event or be invited to the party or be seen with certain people. Or the sports addict. You know, the person whose identity is tied up in whether or not his or her team is winning or losing at the moment, and it becomes obsessive. In this culture right now, our sexuality is a huge one that is about identity, and it really shouldn't be. That's such a small part of who you are as a person, but that's part of the lobby right now of the LGBTQ thing. It's not enough to say, I have these feelings. The lobby says, you're not being true to yourself unless you come out and identify as something. You can't just say, I struggle with my attractions, you have to come out and say, I identify as whatever the label is. That's part, that you're being pushed, society is being pushed in that direction. You are far more than your sexual attractions, far more. According to what God says, it's a way bigger thing. Or job position, right, what you do. The butcher, the baker, the candlestick maker, what happens when you retire? Are you still that thing? If your identity was tied to your career position, that's a problem. You know, you're not that anymore, and there are a lot of people, maybe some of you that feel lost because you retired at at an appropriate age and you had a great career, but your identity was so entangled in that career that you don't even know who you are now. Your identity is confused. You know, um, what God declares is most important, He knows not only the past, but also the future. He is preparing for you something that you can't see yet. And so what he declares over you is really important. He knows where you're headed. He knows what he has prepared for you. So what God says of you should be the thing that defines you, over against what the world or even your family of origin or your workplace or whatever the sources might say of you. And to follow Jesus, if you choose to become a Christian, to follow Jesus is to have a new identity. If anyone is in Christ, he or she is a new creation, the oldest past, behold, the new has come. You get a new identity, a new marker. It's very interesting to listen even to the liturgy that we use. Pay attention at the communion liturgy when we get to that point. It says so much about who you are because of what Christ has done his uh, renaming of Simon to Peter is very telling. You know, as Peter, Simon, comes under the influence of the leadership of Christ, he more and more is transformed. And right from the beginning, Jesus says, you are Peter, which means rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. You know, did it say something about Peter being a stable platform? Because he was anything but stable as Simon, right? He was he was missing the missing the mark all the and when he missed he missed big right he was he was so out there and and so impulsive but he was going to be a rock a stable thing on which jesus was going to build his church well jesus was changing his identity and changed his name right at the beginning and then peter had to grow into that over the subsequent years and even falling on his face but to follow jesus is to have a new identity now even jesus's identity needed to be declared to the world And frankly to him now last week we looked at him as a 12 year old boy and he already knew who he was didn't you know i had to be in my father's house he says to mary and joseph And we looked at that text last week by the age of 12 he knew he was the son of god he knew god the father was his heavenly father and he had to be about that business who are you and what do you do i'm the son of god and i'm about my father's business that's how jesus at 12 would have answered it and by the time he's 30 we see this event here, his baptism is, is his declaration, the father's declaration of who is this person so everyone would know. It's very interesting looking at this text. It's a rich four verses. We only have four verses in this section, but it's got so much content. I'm trying to exercise restraint for the sake of focus here this morning. But people around Nazareth, around those towns, saw Jesus as Joseph's son, the carpenter, the carpenter's son. That's what they thought of him as. Our text last week ended with Jesus submitting to Mary and Joseph and quietly going back to Nazareth, kind of into obscurity for the next 17 years. Probably doing carpentry. Probably just, you know, doing the stuff that any other Jewish boy in Nazareth would do. We don't know because nothing is recorded until we get to this moment. But here, things change. One, one scholar I read referred to this as the ordination of Jesus. He was ordained here. John the Baptist accurately saw him as the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world, but didn't accurately understand what he would do. He knew who he was, but he didn't know what that meant, what he, what he would do. John the Baptist misunderstood how the Messiah's ministry was going to go. And this event here was even a little bit confusing for John the Baptist. So the event's kind of simple. At the right time, according to the Father's timescale, Jesus came out and John had been baptizing. John the Baptist, his cousin, was baptizing Jews in the Jordan River. And you need to know what he was doing was not usual. Baptism in those days was for proselytes. It was for Gentiles that were converting to Judaism. The Jews would think of it as, you need to wash all that filthy Gentile stuff off of you and then come be one of God's people. So when John told the Jews they were a brood of vipers who warned you to flee from the coming wrath, and he came in with that Old Testament fiery prophet language, he was saying, Jews, you're dirty too you need to be washed, you need to repent of those sins, and name specific ones. So when Jesus shows up for that, it was scandalous to him. He would have prevented him, he didn't want to baptize Jesus. But in this moment, something really important was happening, and, and, and he does baptize him, and when Jesus comes up out of the Jordan River, it says that the heavens were opened, and the Father's voice is heard saying, "'This is my beloved Son, with whom I am well pleased.'" Or the text can say, this is my son, the beloved. The Greek can go either way. And there's a footnote in the text there. This is my son, the beloved, with whom I am well pleased. And then it says the spirit in, in a bodily form, this, the Holy Spirit is not a body, does not have a body, but in that moment was given a manifestation through a dove and came and descended upon Jesus and remained with him. So this thing like a dove, like, I, I don't know exactly, came down upon him and, and remained with him. This is a Trinitarian moment. We see all three persons of the Trinity present, and it's powerful. The Father is speaking, the Son is bodily there, and the Spirit comes like a dove. All three persons are there. And we find that Jesus in this moment is being declared to be loved and approved. This is my beloved Son. I'm well pleased with him. It's quite possible to love your son or daughter and not be pleased with what they're doing. And the Father was saying, I love him, and I'm happy, I'm pleased with what he is doing and what he's about to do. And then the Spirit comes and anoints him. He is the anointed, literally that's what Christ means. The Messiah was the anointed one. Christ means the one who's been anointed for this task, and he's been called to a specific thing. So here, you could say he was ordained. He was launching his public ministry, and he has this declaration of God's love and of his sonship, which by the way, next week when we look at the temptation, Satan's going to attack that three times. Oh, really, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, if you are the son of God, our enemy wants to tear down what God says about our identity and and question it and challenge it and subvert it. Now, based on last week, we would say Jesus knew he was the son of God and was loved. But, you know, have you ever had this conversation where somebody says, well, you know I love you, right? Right? And your answer is, yeah, but it's nice to hear it once in a while. That would be true of Jesus, fully human. He knows God loves him. He knows the Father loves him. But it's great to hear it said, this is my beloved son. And I think it ministered to Jesus as much as the crowds. They needed to hear it, but so did he. And we, frankly, need to tell the people that we love that we love them. And we need to hear it from them. It's part of the human experience. So this is for Jesus, it's for the crowds, and frankly, it's for John the Baptist. In the text right before this, the paragraph right before, John's doing his baptism, right? And he says, I'm baptizing you with water, but one who comes after me will baptize you with fire and the Holy Spirit. I'm not even worthy to untie his sandals. So I imagine this event was still a little confusing for John the Baptist when a dove, the symbol of peace, defenseless, you know, Nobody's afraid of a dove attacking them. They're gentle beings. They're they're a sign of peace. A dove comes down. If John the Baptist wrote the script, it would have gone like this. When Jesus came up out of the water, the heavens were open. The Father said, I love you. I'm well pleased with you. A lightning bolt came down. Jesus grew 15 feet tall and was clad in armor and placed on a war horse. That's how John the Baptist was seeing it. But a dove? Jesus, this kind of gentle... And we learn later that he's, he's led like a lamb before a shearers. I don't, you know, I'm not a farmer, but I'm told, Luke could probably tell us, he went and studied this at one point, that sheep get real quiet before they're about to be shorn. Jesus went quietly to the cross. He did not come on a war horse. He came actually riding on a donkey, humbly, right? Later he's coming on a horse, if you read Revelation. We will see him come as the, the king of kings and the lord of lords, but here This was very different. All four of the gospel writers mention this. The baptism is part of all four of the gospels, and it mentions the dove coming down upon him. Jesus would serve us by another kind of baptism. He says, I have a baptism to be baptized with, oh, that it were already accomplished. And he was talking about the cross. You know, even our text from Romans 6 talks about us needing to be baptized with Christ. In death, we need to be we need to be baptized into the cross so that we can also share in the resurrection, that we have to put to death certain things in us to experience this new life. It's a total change of identity. It's a change of allegiance. He has has delivered us from a kingdom of darkness and made us citizens in this kingdom of light. It's so interesting how the Son of Man and the Son of God, two designators for Jesus. Last week, we saw him as fully human. This week, we hear the Father calling him his son. So this is the Son of God, Son of Man, how Jesus put together that powerful ruling figure of Daniel the prophet, the son of man, one like a son of man, and the suffering servant of Isaiah who would not even snuff out a smoldering wick. I mean, Jesus was this gentle leader and he also is this mighty ruler. It's so interesting when you see him stand before, you know, Herod and Pilate and all this and be questioned by the supposed power. And Jesus is like, don't you think I could call down angels right now? and he's choosing to let it happen because that's how he came to serve us. So John the Baptist was reluctant to baptize. He knew him as that, and he was reluctant to baptize him. You're not sinful. You don't need to be washed. And Jesus says, it's necessary for now to fulfill all righteousness, and then John consents. And that's a kind of a, a difficult text. What did he mean to fulfill all righteousness? Well, one of the great passages of the New Testament about this exchange that happens where he, he identifies with our sin and we get his righteousness is 2 Corinthians uh, 5 where God made him who had no sin to become sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Jesus was coming to fully identify with sinful humanity, to do everything that a good Jewish person was supposed to do even though he didn't need that. He was without sin. He didn't need to do some of the things he did. He did it because he came to identify with us. We're talking about identity here, right? He was taking on sinful humanity to redeem it, to pay for that sin, to win forgiveness on the cross for us so that in him we might get the righteousness of God. We might be seen by God as righteous. We don't earn this. We can't do it ourselves. Anything that we might do in this life you know, who are you and what do you do? It comes out of what Christ has done for us. So in him becomes a very important phrase, especially for the Apostle Paul. In Christ, in him. What does it mean to be in him? It means to be a new person. It means to be born again. It means to have a new kind of life. It means to have a new identity out of which you now behave, out of which you live, out of, out of which you, you strive to live up to the Ten Commandments and all of God's law and the Sermon on the Mount. You know, I love how the late Tim Keller used to say it, that Jesus life, lived the life that we should have lived, but died the death we deserve to die. He, he didn't deserve that cross. It was ours, and he took it for us. He lived how we were supposed to live, and so he's won for, for us something that changes our identity. The question this morning that I'm I'm going to ask um, the children to ask you parents and grandparents and for anyone to either personally to reflect upon or for you to discuss after we go out of here is what kind of things, what does the father say, identi- speaking in terms of identity, what does he say over us? How does he speak of us? What does the Bible say if you are in Christ? happens? I think one of the best places to go is the, book, the letter to the Ephesians, which is cosmic in scope and it, it uses perfect tense nouns, which are, are verbs, which are actions that happen in the past, distinctly completed, and then have ongoing effects into the future. If you're not a grammar person, it's the tense that usually says, has been, or we have been. We have been raised with Christ. We have been seated in the heavens, heavenlies with him. Even though we're here, all that is true. And it's something that was established earlier, and the effects will carry forward into that future that you and I can't see, but God does. So consider some of the things. I'm just cherry-picking out of um, Ephesians 1, verses 3 through 14. It, he's, Paul says in there, every spiritual blessing in the heavenlies has been given to us. It's already accomplished. We have these spiritual blessings in the heavenlies for us, and we don't quite know what that's gonna even look like. It says that we've been adopted as sons or daughters. We have a new family. Everyone comes from a dysfunctional family on some level, but by this adoption in Christ, you have a new family, one that won't ever end, one that Christ continues to perfect. You belong now. Our discipleship pathway talks about worship and belonging and then serving and making disciples. You belong to a family. You've been adopted as a co-heir, a son or a daughter. You're royalty in that sense. You're not just average. You're a son or daughter of the king by adoption in Christ. It says, Paul says, that we've been given grace in the beloved, and the ESV makes it a capital B. I imagine he was thinking back to, to the father saying, this is my beloved son, the beloved here at Jesus's baptism. Paul's thinking about that. And we've been We have redemption through the blood, that text of that great exchange. You know, we've been redeemed from sin and Satan and death and the world's broken systems and the false identities, all of that by the blood of Christ. And it says that we know the plan. He's revealed his plan to us. He's told us something of what is to come, which makes it possible for us to go through the difficulties of this life. These slight momentary afflictions, as Paul writes elsewhere, which are preparing for us an eternal weight of glory. We have obtained an inheritance, it says. You're an inheritor. You just don't quite know what it is. You don't quite have it yet, but it's already yours. It ha- you have an- obtained it. It's that perfect tense. And then, and then Paul concludes that section by saying, in him, there's that in him, you also have heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him. You were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee." down payment. That word is like a down payment on a home, like earnest money. The Spirit of God is in you if you're a Christian. And you know what he does? He whispers constantly, I love you. You are loved. You are forgiven. You are my beloved child as well. The Holy Spirit does that inwardly. We're hearing lies on the outside about who we are or aren't, and the Holy Spirit is saying, no, I say that you are this. You are loved by God. Your sins are forgiven. That cross is for you. It's true. The Holy Spirit does that constantly for us. He's speaking God's love over us. Now, what's the application? Well, one, if you're not baptized, get baptized. That's the way you connect with Christ. That's the way your identity is changed. Repent of your sin, believe in Jesus, and be baptized. We have a class on April 2nd and then baptism on April 7th coming up. If you're confused about baptism, sign up for that class. Even if you're baptized and you want to learn more about what it meant, sign up for that class. Second, I think we need to rethink some things. I want to encourage you to go back and think about these things that God declares over you. Abide in His presence, look at who He is. look at who Jesus is, and then let that inform your own identity. and then out of that, let your ministry go forward. Who are you and what do you do? Ask those two questions in that order in light of God, in light of Jesus and who He was and who what He did, and, and through what He did. Would you pray with me? Lord, I thank you. Um, that you are transforming us. I thank you that despite our unworthiness, you make us worthy. Thank you, Jesus, for for your ministry. Thank you for your Holy Spirit. If there's anyone in this room who's not trusted you, would you give that gift of faith and the courage to repent and turn to you and be baptized? And for, for those of us who do know you, Lord, help us to recognize the false identities and repent of them and be your sons and daughters once again. I ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.